Season 1, Episode 54 of the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name is Aaron Santamire, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to sit down with Steve Cuss, the author of the book, uh, Managing Leadership Anxiety, um, a book I had read um, a few months ago, and then um, Andy and Nancy Rotz had mentioned it um, to me again. And so I reached out to Steve and asked him if he would consider being on the podcast, and he did. And and uh, Nancy and um, Andy and I worked on some questions, and it was just a valuable time just to sit down with Steve, learn from him, grow from his wisdom and insight and experience, and um, his leadership lessons are, are fascinating. This is not just um, pulp pop culture uh, leadership uh, ideas that Steve presents. He's um, based on studies, based on research, based on science, and also based on practical experience. And so uh, just he's a fascinating to sit down and talk with, talk with, very insightful, and that'll come out in the interview. And uh, we talk about um, family systems theories. We talk about triangulization um, and how we go to that in relationships and how it can be destructive. We look for stability in relationships. Uh, and what promote, provokes or causes anxiety in leaders. And um, I, just, I just find his um, understanding and um, the way he communicates to be fascinating. And he's got some a training that will be coming up. I'll put the links on that in the um, show notes um, where he'll be going and working with individuals and beta groups and then um, launching it out. And uh, if you'd like more information, that will we'll include that and then a link also to his book, Ma- Managing leadership anxiety and I'd encourage you to pick that one up if you haven't read it yet. So looking forward to today and uh, just want to thank our um, sponsor for today's episode Appalachian Spring Dermatology bringing new life to your skin. Learn more about the medical cosmetic and skin cancer screenings and treatments at Appalachian Spring Dermatology and sign up for Dr. Rosenberger's blog at wvderm.com. Well there's no time better than now to get started so here we go. Well, greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. I'm so excited to be here today with Steve Cuss. Um, I have uh, listened to his podcast faithfully, and um, really the first time I'd heard about Steve was through his book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. And um, it's been a book that I've read and reread and taken notes and taken more notes off the notes I've taken. And um, I'm so excited for us to get to learn from Steve today and appreciate him being on the podcast. Steve, would you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience, um, maybe those who are not let, yet listening to your podcast, maybe not yet have read your book, um, and uh, just introduce yourself for the audience. Yeah, Aaron, thanks very much. It, it's a pleasure to visit with you and, and to chat. Uh, I grew up in Western Australia. I grew up unchurched, uh, like heavily, I would say heavily unchurched, uh, none <laughs> of my family, except my sister and I are believers, and my older sister led me to Christ. Um, a couple of years after that, I, I felt a real call into ministry. So I actually moved to the United States for study, and hmm. um, the long story, I, I've done some crisis intervention in Las Vegas, which was quite an adventure. <laughs> I'm I, sure. Uh, I worked on a, a ranch for, for teenagers that were getting in trouble for a while, and uh, I was a hospital chaplain, which was kind of the basis of the book, did some trauma and hospice chaplain, and then uh, for the last 15 years, I've been a lead pastor in a suburban church in the Denver, Boulder, Colorado area. Wow. Wow. And so, um, and you're, you, you married, do you have a family? Yeah. Yep. Been married for 24 years to Lisa. And then I've got three kids. My two boys are 19 and 17 and my daughter's 13. Wow. And, Good deal. Uh, 
Yeah, man, marriage and family for me is about as good as it gets. We we really have a great time. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so I have a daughter um, who Isabel, who's 16, and my son Josiah is 14. And uh, it's a it's a different t- season in our life and family, but a very exciting one too um, as they grow up. And uh, I'm learning from them. And uh, and uh, yeah, it's an interesting interesting time in life. So. Yeah. Steve, um, before we, one of the first questions that kind of leads in that, that I wanted to um, ask you about today was you know, one thing I've heard you share on your podcast and even in the book um, about family systems theory. Um, could you unpack that? I know that's a broad topic, but could you unpack that and how that, why that is important for us to know about when it comes to be in leadership and, and managing anxiety? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. A family systems theory was, was, basically created by Murray Bowen. He was a psychiatrist. And in 1954, he was doing his psychiatric work in a psych ward in a hospital. And uh, his specialty was young adult men with teenage onset paranoid schizophrenia. Hmm. So basically, he was working with men in their 20s, maybe their 30s, who when they were teenage boys, suddenly had schizophrenia, had to be committed to a psych ward. And those were Murray Bowen's patients. So if you imagine 1950s, obviously psych wards would have been no picnic, but also yeah, sure. the, the basic psychological theory of the day was more like Freudian or Jungian. It was all about individual issues and how problems are inside us. But as Bowen noticed the relationship between these young men and their parents when their parents would visit on Sunday afternoons during visiting hours, hmm. he started to notice that it wasn't just that problems happen inside us, but problems are also generated between us. Hmm. And so there's, there's a whole lot to talk about there, but he created what, what is now known as the eight concepts of Bowen theory or family systems theory. And it's basically eight principles to help you understand how do problems happen inside us? How do they happen between us? But I think more interestingly, how do we get trapped in those problems to where they become recurring? Okay. Obviously, that was the 1950s. A lot has happened since then. Um, He spent most of his time looking at the nuclear family. Obviously, that's become more complicated now. But but the the eight concepts still ring true, and a lot of people have picked up this theory and adapted it or maybe updated it. And so uh, there's all kinds of people now studying it. And I was exposed to it when I was a hospital chaplain. It became an incredibly powerful tool for me to notice what was going on inside of me when I would walk into a room where people were very upset. Hmm. Because Bowen's idea is when we walk into an environment, we have an impact on it. So hmm. even when a family comes into therapy, Bowen would train the therapist to be aware of their own impact on the room. And then one of the ways I've taken it is theologically. I, I think actually there's a lot of family system theory right in the Bible. And uh, it's, it's the eight concepts, you can find them all in scripture. But I also think the gospel actually comes alive uh, when you understand how systems theories at play. So I'll, I'll leave it there. I can take it any direction you want, but that's the gist. No, no, no. You have a, you talked about, um, you shared that you, when you were do, working in a hospital and walked about. Do you have a story that might illustrate that about how the family systems theory and how it, it you how you impacted the room or I don't know. Does that make any sense? Just a story that yeah. might illustrate it? Yeah. So I'll give you one quick story about how I impacted a situation. And then one quick story about when I walk in and see a family dynamic at play. 
so the way I impacted, like, you know, when I, when I was a chaplain, I was very young and uh, very green. And I wasn't aware that I had all of these triggers under the surface in my life. And so, for example, once you've been a chaplain for a while, you start getting afraid that the next time you go to the emergency room to meet the ambulance, mm. you start getting afraid it's going to be your wife or, mm. or it's going to be someone you know. And so as I was walking to meet the family, uh, the ambulance or the helicopters flying in with someone in trauma, you know, my job is to connect with the family and, and sit with them and wait. And as I'm walking to that meeting, I'm praying two prayers. The first prayer is very simple. It's, please, God, don't let this person be my wife. Hmm. The second prayer is, please, God, don't let it be anyone I know. And then when I get to the emergency room and, and the doctors are rushing in and the patient's on the gurney and their head is strapped down and their eyes are bulging with fear, I, I look at that person and I don't recognize them. And then I pray a third prayer. Please, God, uh, thank you, God, that it's not my wife, not anyone I know. Hmm. Now, that little kind of trifecta of prayers is completely human. If, if I were a chaplain today, I'd pray those same prayers. There's no problem with those prayers. Hmm. The problem is that third prayer, thank you, God, that there's no one I know. It's, very, it's painfully similar to the prayer of the Pharisees in, in the Gospels. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that person. Hmm. And you, you cannot be fully present to somebody while you're celebrating that you're not them. Wow. And so, so just one idea is that we all carry fears, triggers, anxieties, pressures, and it doesn't take much for them to bubble up and erupt like a volcano. And then what they do is they, they spill over and they actually infect our ability to be actually present to what's going on. So that would be one example, like when I write in the book about yours and theirs, that's kind of the yours section. Yeah. Now the their section, we could we, we learned how to walk into a room and if, if mum is in the bed and she's just discovered she has cancer and the adult kids are gathered around the bed and the, maybe dad's around the bed as well, over time you could walk into a room and you could actually, just by observing people's posture and the way they talk to each other, you could basically get a pretty accurate guess on birth order and hmm. a pretty accurate summary of whether this was a healthy family, whether they had tension, who's the black sheep, Who's the one that always makes the decisions for everybody else? You know, who's the one that's over-functioning and hyper-responsible? Who's the one that always feels like a victim? Like these are these are classic family systems types that if, if you're trained in this, you'll never walk into a room again and just pay attention to content, like what people are saying. You'll actually start walking into rooms and paying attention to process, which is the way people are relating. Hmm. And it's a really, really powerful tool for a faith leader because you can bring systemic change to a group when you're operating on a process level, not just a content level. But most leaders, we get wrapped up in content, what people are saying. And so would that be like the superficial, would it be like the superficial thing would be the content and you're thinking it's more like going deeper down to the actual dynamics? Yeah, and I, I wouldn't minimize the content. Like what people are saying really matters. Mm -hmm. I would just encourage people to like exercise your process muscles and start noticing the way people relate. So, you know, for your listeners, if, let's say that a lot of your listeners have a family um, or, or maybe you're married. 
The difference between content and process is when you get into an argument, content is what you're arguing about. Okay. Process is the way you argue with each other. And okay. when couples come in to see me, or maybe a parent or teen comes in to see me and they're having some bumps, I'm really not very interested in content. It's not that it isn't important. I'm mostly interested in the way you argue because the way you argue is generally the same every time. Even hmm. though what you argue about is different, the pattern of your argument is usually predictable to a family system theorist. And so if I can help you see the pattern that you're stuck in, you now have incredible power to change that pattern because you're kind of no longer stuck in it. So I don't know if that helps, but yeah, it does. most of you can be thinking about your marriages or your family relationships and you can be like, oh yeah, like my mother, <laughs> I, you know, we have the same, we've had the same dynamic for 20 years. A family system series can help you break it. And the yeah. beauty of it is your mother doesn't have to be in on it. Not that you're being wow. manipulative or, but it only takes one to change a systemic pattern. Wow. Uh, that, that's the power of it. Steve, the majority of the missionaries listening to this probably serve on a team. And um, would this same, could it be applied to a team too? The, the process and the way we engage on a team, would that be, would there be a family systems theory application to that also? Yeah, this is my favorite part about systems theory is, is really all I've done. And I, I want to be really careful. I'm, I'm not unique in this. There's actually a number of us that do this work. All we've done is taken family systems theory off the therapy counter and okay. we've simply sifted it through the gospel and moved it into the church or to the mission field or really any organization. So systems theory teaches us that any team over time will operate similar way to a family. Hmm. So maybe you're not thinking about your mother or, or a teenager. Maybe you're thinking about a fellow team member when you have team meetings. The same rules apply. It's usually the same person who speaks up first. It's usually the same person who will never speak unless they're spoken, you know, unless they're called upon. Mm -hmm. And then I think dangerously, it's often the same people that don't say much in the meeting, but they always have the meeting after the meeting. <laughs> and most of you listening already know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Even though I don't know, you know, I don't know your yeah. team, but you're listening and you're saying, oh my goodness, that's Paul. Yeah. Or you're saying, maybe you're saying, Oh, wow, that's me. Yeah. Like, I do that. A systems theorist will come into a team and will basically set a safe environment for you to have a difficult conversation about your dynamic because everyone gets a little touchy and defensive. So our job is to come in and help you be able to talk about anxious things in a non-anxious way. And that's where real change and breakthrough happens. That's awesome. That's awesome. One thing that you you write about that, and I've heard you share on your podcast about, is triangu triangulation, and um, that's fascinating to me because um, you shared you shared that it provides stability, but ultimately it's it's not a productive way. Um, could you unpack that uh, triangulation, triangulation, what and what it looks like, and how that um, might negatively impact a relationship? Yeah, triangulation or triangles is one of the eight concepts of Bowen theory. It's one of the foundational teachings of system theory. It's the simple idea that whenever there's anxiety between two people, they all want to bring a third person in to spread the anxiety. Hmm. So chronic anxiety is contagious in every group. And the most common way we relieve our anxiety is through forming triangles. 
the simplest way to understand it would be simply talking about somebody when they're not in the room. Okay. In a way that you would never talk to them. Like venting. If you've ever vented about someone, you're just trying to get something off your chest. That's not necessarily toxic, but that is triangling. You're not mm -hmm. talking to that person about the problem. And a lot of, I've got to say, a lot of Christians particularly are very uncomfortable with direct conversation. They're more comfortable talking about somebody than to them. Now, out of triangles, there's this thing called triangulation. And that is toxic. That'll always make you more anxious. And so gossip is always triangulation. Um, and, and as I've, I've done cross-cultural work, I've been in Kenya a number of times, in Haiti, and Paraguay. One of, the, one of the commonalities of developing culture is people tend to triangulate in developing culture. People tend to have non-direct communication. Hmm. And so a lot of missionaries deal with a lot of triangulation among the people they're working with. That's a very common challenge. Uh, and so someone might call you and talk about another person, and all you're doing is listening to them and trying to care for them. But what they're doing is they're projecting their frustration onto you, and then they're triangulating you onto their team against the other person. So if you're not careful, maybe someone calls you and they complain that about drinking. They'll get off the phone with you, and then they'll call Jane and say, hey, uh, you know, Aaron and I were talking, and we both think. And suddenly yeah. you're triangulated. <laughs> you're like, wait, I don't think that at all. I was just listening. <laughs> Triangulation can be really sophisticated. Um, but you, the way you notice it most is through the lens of secret keeping. That's when you know you're potentially triangulating someone or being triangulated. Wow. Um, easiest way to spot it in the most fun way is middle school relationships. Middle school is filled with triangulated relationships. Kids, like even if you want to ask a girl out, you, you'll send an emissary you know, to go <laughs> chat with her friends. You know, so That's triangulation. And so what can we do... Uh... In that the illustration you just gave, um, there's somebody calls, they talk to you, and then they go and they say, what can we do um, if we're on a team and some, that situation, we see that playing out. Steve, what have, what have you found that works that we can um, not push back against triangula triangulation, but to not get caught up in it? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, there's actually a lot you can do with triangulation. So the simplest thing you can do is as somebody is talking to you and venting, you can kind of just sense in your spirit, is this person venting or do they need an intervention? Hmm. And at some point, like I've had this conversation a number of times where I will say to somebody, I know you're frustrated and I know you're venting, but I can feel myself, my spirit's getting uncomfortable because we're talking about somebody who's not here. Wow. What if we got that person in the room? Let's go, like, let's call. I know this person, they're a reasonable person. Can the three of us meet together? So one way to detriangulate is to simply give everyone access to the same information. So early in my ministry, uh, for example, maybe a wife would come and make an appointment with me, and she would basically be saying, she didn't say it this way, but this is what she was asking. How can we together make my husband more spiritual? Hmm. And what she meant by that was, I'm doing a Beth Moore study where I have an hour of homework a day. I can't get my husband to open his Bible and pray. Let's fix this. And now what's interesting is I have a broader theology. By the way, I love Beth Moore Bible studies. I just, it's not a comment on the Bible study. But what she's saying is there's a very specific lens by which I'm measuring my husband's spirituality. Now, what's also true about this guy 
is if you called him and said, there's a single mother in need, could you help fix her car? He'd be on it. He'd do yeah. it. He'd yeah. sacrifice to do it. His spirituality just is expressed in more visceral ways. So sometimes a woman would even say, maybe you could call him and say the Holy Spirit told you, you know, prompted you to call. And I'm like, look, I don't triangulate the Holy Spirit. How about this? I'll call your husband and I'll say, <laughs> your wife was in to see me. She's yeah. concerned about your spirituality. I just want you to know I have no concern at all. I'm not hmm. concerned. But if you'd like to come in and chat, I'd be happy to chat with you if you'd like to talk about growing in Christ. But the reason I'm calling is she asked me to call. Wow. Now, at that point, she's saying, never mind. And then she's finding another pastor. <laughs> yeah, she's not happy. <laughs> but but I, I, I owe that. I owe a direct conversation to every person in my congregation. Hmm. And so um, it's just amazing how much behind the back talking we do. So I was actually recently working with a missionary organization in Haiti, and they were having this issue for years. The leader, the, the leader was from the United States, and he would visit Haiti a lot, but he was based in the United States. And he's like, look, I've got for eight years, I've got these three guys that constantly call me and complain about each other. And I'm always caught in the middle, and I'm trying to resolve it, and I'm listening for hours. And I'm like, that's nonsense. Like, and, and this guy was saying, does family systems theory work in Haiti? And I said, yeah, it's, it's a human issue. It's not a, cult, it's not a Western cultural concept. This wow. transcends culture. So we set up some ways to detriangulate, and it dissolved like years and years of problems. And he, he just called the guys, and he said to them one at a time, I'm no longer going to talk about somebody if they're not in the room. And then hmm. having done it one at a time, he set up a Zoom with all four of them, the three Haitians and Jim. Hey, I want you to know, anytime any of you have an issue with each other, that's normal. That's fine. No problem. And if you can't resolve it, I'd love to help. But the way we're going to help now is we're all going to get on the call at the same time. Wow. That's the triangulating. And it just dissolved. Yeah. And we see it. Why do you think, you, you said you think Christians, we're more comfortable with it. Is that... Is that a part of our faith? Because you said you've you've what you've you've worked with inter, not intersecting or, or family systems theory and the gospel integration with that. Why do you think people that were supposedly following Christ were we get caught up into this and into this way of communication? I think the primary issue is I think we get very confused on what love is, and whenever we have a difficult conversation that doesn't feel loving. Wow. And I also think um, we, we are confused and we think that Jesus called us to be nice. And mm. I think we think of niceness through the lens of being indirect. Wow. Um, and so I, I guess what's probably honest is everyone struggles with this, but Christians should know better is probably what I would say. Yeah. But, but also, you know, we can blame people in the Bible. Like this triangulation all through Scripture when James and John's mother went to Jesus. Yeah. Hey, you know, would you, that's triangulation. When you, you just look at the relationship between Abraham uh, and uh, Sarah and uh, Hagar, yeah. that's a triangulated relationship. If you look at Jacob and uh, Rebecca and Esau, that's triangulated. Like, like when your own mother is colluding against you with her favorite <laughs> son, that's bad. Like, you know? <laughs> so there's triangles all through the Bible. Yeah. Um, that's, and that's I, I think it's probably just the human condition. That's, that's good. 
I wanted to ask you another question. Your book, I'll be honest with you, a page that I went back to, actually a few pages I went back to many times because you're the first person I've ever heard express um, this thought. And then I want to ask you um, then after I share this thought, how this might, as an outside observer working with missionaries about anxieties, and um, maybe this is part of it, but you share in your book um, that... um, we're not going to become more like Jesus. Um, we're, we're called to follow him um, and the anxiety that sometimes that um, that can provoke. And do you think that is that more common in missionaries or in pastors or, or is that common for every every Christian that is tr- trying to follow Jesus? I, I think we are perpetuating an unintentional, very well-meaning heritage. Hmm. And that heresy is that we can become like Christ if we just keep working. Wow. Uh, so so I, I think it's widespread. I think it's actually one of the number one legalistic diseases in Christianity. So I have, I have very strong opinions about this. No. And, I, and when I published the book, the publisher, they're like, hey, this is something we've never seen before. Like a lot of what I wrote, a lot of people have written about before. And the first time I shared with my elders, this is now... 14 years ago that I was done trying to be like Jesus. I thought I might lose my job. Hmm. That my, my elders were like, wait, like if you're giving up, but, but when you look at it logically, not a single one of the disciples was anything like Jesus. Yeah. Um, they just weren't. And when you look at it logically, the reason we worship Jesus is because he is so utterly distinct from us. Like, yes, he's fully human, but he's also fully God. He's the only hum- He's the only person who is fully divine and fully human. We will never be that. Like our religion does not teach us that one day we will be God. That's considered heresy. And so I think what happens is we all, for example, open our Bibles and read the fruit of the Spirit, and then we say, "Oh boy, I'm just not very patient. I I, I must be more patient." And we take uh, transformation, and we take it out of God's hands and we put it into our own hands, and that's what legalism is. And then we say, I must be more patient, must be more patient. But what what the vision in Scripture, Paul, Paul writes about this beautifully, but Jesus also speaks very frankly about this. The vision in Scripture is that we will get further and freer if we die rather than try. If we spend more time dying to ourselves than trying harder to be like Christ, and it really is disturbing how much this kind of like Christ language has seeped into our culture. Hmm. Um, uh, friends of mine, they're, they're part of a neighboring movement. And, and this one guy, he told me one day, he says, I'm just trying to be Jesus to my neighbor. And I, I, he was surprised. I looked horrified. And, and I wasn't, <laughs> I just kind of, I'm like, why, why would you do that? Like, like, do you have a park in your neighborhood? Yeah, we've got a little pocket park in our neighborhood. Like, Okay, so your neighbor's coming home from work and he sees you crucified in the park? Like, that's just going to confuse him. <laughs> and the guy's like, come on, man, you know what I mean. I'm like, no, all I know is what you said. You said you're just trying to be Jesus to your neighbor. But if you try to be Jesus to your neighbor, your neighbor will never meet the actual Jesus Christ if you change life. Wow. I, I, I've also seen it in the Western church. I don't know if this is, you know, in the first time I heard this was Willow Creek Church, and I just thought, why are you saying this? But they said, 
the local church is the hope of the world. And I thought to myself, if the local church is the hope of the world, we're all doomed. But if Jesus is the hope of the world, which is what the Bible teaches, and we are pointing to Jesus, then there's real, there's genuine hope. And again, when I say this, people say, well, you know what we mean. And I say, all I know is what you're saying. Because when you say, I'm just trying to be Jesus to my neighbor, what you mean is, I'm trying to live in such a way that Jesus is fascinating to my neighbor. That's different. Mm. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. I'm trying to live in such a way, I'm trying to make it look so good to follow Jesus that anyone would want to follow him. That's ultimately what a missionary is trying to do. But I, I think this well-intentioned, well-meaning legalism is deadly. And I think it's exhausting us because none of us will ever be like Christ, even when we get to heaven. But every one of us, like this is Dallas Willard. This is all Dallas Willard says. Dallas Willard says everybody can follow Jesus. It's not difficult. Like it's not complicated. You just die to yourself and you follow Jesus. Uh, but if you try to be like Jesus, that becomes like this weird extra thing. It's like a self-salvation project. So I don't know if that helps. But oh, yeah, it does. No, no, no. You, you're the first person. I mean, I read, I mean, I'm not the best, I'm not the most read person in the world, but I read, you know, I read a lot of books and um, you're the first, that thought when you shared it, I thought, man, I, and I read it, read it again. And then I, it's, and, and it just made me think, you know, I, I don't know. I think I heard you share on a podcast, you know, there's not been in a church that somebody gets the Jesus award, you know, right. <laughs> and, it, right. and it, it, you know, there's not a trophy. You're the, you're the, you're, you're, you've arrived, you get the Jesus award Finally today. Finally became like Christ. That's Congratulations. Right. <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know if you guys are fans of um, Will Ferrell in the movie Elf, but when he goes into that coffee shop, because on the front of the coffee shop, it says world's best coffee. And yeah. Elf goes, congratulations, everyone. That's the way I picture it. Like, you finally became like Christ. You're the one. Crazy. So what people say when I, when I say this, people say, well, the goal isn't to become like Christ. It's just to, like, strive. Yeah. And, and I'm like, God, that's not the kind of God we serve. That's, hmm. that's cruel. The whole yeah. carrot out of reach. Uh, most, of our, most of the reason we don't grow in Christ is because we're trying on our own strength. And, you know, I write about it more in the book, but chronic anxiety becomes the evidence that we're actually trying out of our false self yeah. rather than dying to our false self and letting the power of Jesus you know, resurrected bring us to, to new life in Christ. That's All true. of the language that Paul uses is old life, new life, and die to self and live for Christ. And, you know, we, once we're dead in Christ, now, now the Holy Spirit animates us alive. And that's where people say, aha, that's, you know, that's where we become like Christ. No, no. God, the, the work of forging us like Christ is God's work. Our work is simply to die to self. So if I want to become a more patient person, I'm going to get further if I just die to what's making me impatient yeah. than try to become more patient on my It's good. It's been a it's been a thought that I can tell you I've spent a lot of time I, I'm a runner and I, I you know I think when I run and uh, I've thought a lot about it and um, yeah it's a it's a fascinating thought and uh, it's been very freeing for me and um, uh, yeah so I really really appreciate it one more question before uh, in your podcast you normally kind of run people through some gauntlets of question uh, gauntlet yeah. of questions at the end but before we get there I just want to ask one more question if it's okay um, you shared your book about leadership and the anxiety of if people are not um if people are moving away from you it's hard 
it's almost impossible to lead them. And, um, and it's in that normally when people are moving away from you, it's because they don't trust you. Can you share how that provokes, um, anxiety in a leader and, and does it create more anxiety to try to lead people that are moving away from you and really don't want to be led by you? Yes, that's, that's everything you said. I, I believe is true. And I believe a leader can de-escalate their anxiety by the simple question, is this person interested in what I have to say? Like, that's what I mean by moving toward me. Are they open to me influencing their life? And a lot of people just are not. And there's a lot of reasons they're not. Uh, some of them are your fault. Like, I've, I have made leadership mistakes that have hurt people. Nothing abusive or nothing illegal, but just well-meaning mistakes where people are hurt. And they're no longer moving toward me, and that's that's my fault. And I can make repair, and I can ask for forgiveness. It's, but then there are other people that just the way they're wired, like there are just certain people that almost every community has them. They simply don't trust a leader, and it has nothing to do with you. It's just the way they're wired, the way they see the world. They're highly, highly suspicious of leaders. I know in my context, as church wounding and church hurt gets more and more airtime in our culture, which I think is a very good thing. People are coming out and sharing stories of abusive leaders and people who domineer and all of that. I think I'm, I'm for all of that. The problem is people are now coming into my church with previous church hurt stories, highly suspicious of leaders in our church. So we're already suspect and we haven't done anything yet. Hmm. Uh, so for some of those people, you'll, they'll never move toward you. And so you should stop trying to chase them. So there's a family systems theorist named Edwin Friedman. He's probably the most famous systems theorist. And people could Google him. He's written books. He was a Murray Bowen disciple. He studied under Bowen. Friedman says the colossal misunderstanding of our day is that insight works with people who are unmotivated to change. Hmm. And every one of us knows somebody that simply don't want to know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I know a person who they've been part of our church for years and they're very well loved. They're very accepted. They're enjoyed. Like it's not hard to love these people, but they're convinced that they're not loved. Hmm. And they'll often say, woe is me. Nobody knows what it's like to be me. No one cares for me. And I'll say, man, look at all these people that have reached out to you. Like uh, there's one very extreme case who, she received five invitations to Thanksgiving and she turned them all down so that on Thanksgiving she could post on social media, no one loves me. Wow. Yeah, someone like that, we, we, she's, it's not about kicking them out of your community. It's not about that. She's still part of our community. But we're not going to keep chasing her and trying to convince her because she's not interested in our insight. I've wow. tried to give her insight several times. There's something in her that needs to feel alone and isolated. And we can't seem to be able to break through it. So we welcome her. We love her. We give her the same opportunities as ever. But we're no longer scurrying around, desperately trying to help her see what she wants to see. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Because as a leader, then you're, you just end up exhausted. Is that correct? Because you can't, right. is that, would that be a correct assumption? Right. You, you, you wear yourself out trying to help people with something they're actually not interested in. Hmm. And I think if instead you just pause, and this is where I want to be clear, I'm not talking about who's in and who's out. I'm simply talking about 
one of the one of the powerful dynamics in family systems theory is an over-functioning relationship connected to an under-functioning Okay. And most faith leaders I know, including myself, we are prone to over-function. Mm -hmm. If somebody is not doing enough or they don't believe they're lovable or any of these things, we then feel this desperate urge to convince. And in family systems theory would say that what what the overfunctioner and underfunctioner are trying to create is homeostasis, a balance. So therefore, the more you overfunction, the harder the underfunctioner has to work to be helpless. Hmm. So and and most leaders, we love to help people. We love to see life change. So it's not coming from a bad place. It's usually coming from a really good heart. But if we just pause first and and withhold and hold back. And our arms are still open and welcome, but we're no longer chasing. We're now saying, here's the lion, and you are welcome to walk across it, like yeah. everybody else is. But I'm no longer going to walk across that line and drag you over because you keep leaving again. Yeah, that's uh, good. It's much, much healthier. And everyone will thank you, including some of those people. Like what Family systems theory teaches that healthy leaders can actually move into a toxic group and help it become healthy. And that sounds a lot like the gospel to me. That's, yeah. that's what Jesus did. When Jesus came to all these toxic people, these people with leprosy, these so-called sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, this was the revolution of the, of the New Testament is Jesus touches a leper. And in the Old Testament understanding, the leprosy should have infected Jesus. But in the gospel, Jesus' yeah. help heals the leper. And in the same way, an emotionally healthy leader can walk into an unhealthy dynamic and slowly help it become healthy over time. That's uh, good. And so that's, that's, that's kind of the vision for this. And it usually takes a few years, uh, but if you set your stopwatch, you'll see radical, radical. That's, that's cool. Well, that's, I appreciate it. And I'm going to ask these, I got three questions, kind of like the gauntlet uh, that you run people through at the end, but of your podcast. Excellent. So question number one, you, um, what has helped you embrace yourself as the chief mistake maker in your church? And how has that changed your team and your leadership? Wow, I love that question. So when I became a lead pastor, I'd never done it before. And I knew that I would make a lot of mistakes. And so you've got two choices when you make mistakes. And of course, I kind of referenced this before. I'm not talking about mistakes where you wind up in jail or should be taken out of leadership. Right. I just mean, well, meaning mistakes where you got it wrong. And so I, I, I had such a need to look impressive. That would be one of my idols that I just knew in order for my soul to survive. What if I just confessed my mistakes as they happened to my team, to our church? And that would relieve me of the burden of looking intelligent. And it would help me not be my idol of, you know, wanting to look like I'm really know what's going on. And then I started to notice in my team, particularly my younger leaders, they were terrified at making a mistake. They had come from some kind of culture, whether it was a church leadership culture or an organizational culture, where you got in trouble when you made a mistake. And to me, if you're going to live by faith, you're going to make mistakes. You're actually going to think you heard from God, and then it, it's just wrong. That's just reality. Like when none of us, you know, the Old Testament prophets where they'd stone them to death because they didn't get it right every time. None of us <laughs> do that. We're, we're going to think we're following God and be wrong. Yeah. And so mistakes to me became 
uh, a necessary prescription if we're going to keep walking by faith, not by self. So I actually prescribe mistakes for my team. If I see someone on my team afraid of making mistakes, I'll make them make a mistake that week, and then we'll debrief and talk about how. <laughs> Good deal. All right. Question number two. Can you give a recent challenge in which you struggled and had to seek reconciliation? Yeah, I, I, um, I have a tendency when I'm, because my, my life has gotten busier since the book came out. I'm a lead pastor and I'm also doing this MLA work. I'm noticing myself, I've gotten less patient with my own staff if I've already taught them these concepts. Hmm. Even though I know it's true that what I've experienced since the book came out is people need to hear it over and over and they need to try it. It takes time. But uh, I, I, I had a, some staff meetings where I was teaching some concepts I'd taught before. And a couple of the staff were putting up their hands. They didn't understand. They wanted to go deeper. And I was getting combative to the point that I had to then email an apology. I wasn't able to notice it in the moment. I got in the grip of anxiety in the moment. Yeah. But I could feel the staff meeting got weird. I could feel it. And I'm the lead pastor. I have a lot of power. And I tend to be a dominant personality. So I can do some damage with a little mistake. And so I had to email the whole staff and say, hey, here's what happened. And what's interesting about this is it's one of my key leaders that's helped me see this. I didn't even know I was doing this. Hmm. And it's somebody under me. I, I've created a culture where any one of us can talk to any one of us about when we're making a negative impact. So wow. an intern at the church could sit me down and say, here's how I experienced you, or here's how I think you, this staff experienced you. And I have to say, thank you. And I'd like to work on it. And please tell me if you see it again. So wow. that's essential. If you're a leader and you're only pointing out other people, but you're not letting them point out yours, that's not helping. So I had somebody who's worked with me a long time, someone I trust, but they're under my leadership. He came to me and he pointed this dynamic out. In fact, fascinating Aaron Gatch, the first time he pointed it out was in Kenya. We were in Kenya together doing this work in Nairobi and uh, some of the pastors were asking questions and I was getting combative. And as I don't get angry when I get combative, I get smarmy. I get, hmm. um, I double, I'm like, I get playful, but it's still, it's not good. Yeah. And so Jimmy said to me, he's like, hey, you do this thing and it, and it shuts everyone down. And I, and I was like, really? And so I, I, you know, okay, thanks for telling me. And please, like, let me know when you see it again. So he had to tell me twice. And then I noticed it myself. And then I, I had to email the staff. That's probably the most recent example. That's good. That's good. I could ask five more questions on that one, but I won't do that to you. Um, and the last, last one, um, how does a team leader or organizational leader failure to see their own challenges impact the team? And, and do you have any, maybe an example of that that you've seen? Yeah, I'm afraid I've seen it a lot. I, I think I've got a, a friend named Chuck DeGroat, and then there's another gentleman named Wade Mullen. Uh, they've both written books on this, on the tendency in faith leaders toward narcissism. Hmm. And we're not necessarily talking about the clinical narcissistic personality disorder. We're just talking about what happens when you work for God and you speak for God, that you, it, it, it shifts you. And so I'm, I'm sorry to say that I have seen in my own organization and in many that I've consulted with, leaders that will co-opt emotionally healthy language, whether it's like what I teach or someone like a Peter Cesaro teaches, 
and they sound like they're doing emotionally healthy work, but they're just wielding it against their people. Wow. And the best evidence for that is when you show them the impact of their actions. Are they cut to the heart? Are they repentant? Or are they doubling down? And so Henry Cloud has a phenomenal book called Necessary Ending. Yeah. And he has this one chapter in that book that's worth the whole book where he talks about how do you know if you're dealing with a fool, a wise person, or an evil person? And Cloud even says, he's like, hey, as a clinical psychologist, I'm highly uncomfortable with these categories, but this is actually what the Bible, this is the Bible. <laughs> and the difference between a fool and a wise person is whether they move toward the impact of their actions or not. Hmm. And then an evil person wields negative impact intentionally. Um, so I think the big issue is if, if, if your listeners are like the leader of an organization, yeah. All you have to do as a leader is say to your team, what are some healthy ways that you experience me that you find beneficial? Could you give me a couple of ways that you find toxic and challenging? Wow. And then I think the next step is, thank you for telling me. It's very hard for me to heal. Even now I'm feeling defensive and combative. I just want to name that. But if it's going to, because I've had these tendencies for a while, because oftentimes you're the last one to know it, it's blind spot knowledge. So you always feel exposed. You go into shame. But if you can say to your team, if you would be, I would appreciate you being patient with me. It's going to take me a while for God and I to work on this. But I would appreciate it if you would let me know when you see me do it again. Wow. And that's what I've cultivated in my team. Um, and, and, and what the, the end result is not that we're all perfect or we're all walking on a tightrope. Yeah. The end result is more grace for each other. Wow. Um, so, for example, I was working with one team where a key leader just was always irritable a lot. And he still tends to be irritable in that team, but he names it. The people know it. They give him more grace, and he makes repair. It's wow. not that he's now become a monk, you know? That's hmm. the beauty of this. It's just that it gives you more grace for each other because we're all being vulnerable together. Yeah. And that takes, Steve, that takes courage for you as the leader to establish that culture and then to allow people to, to come to you and to lead that way that they're gaining trust. I mean, that's, it's an ideal thing. I just, I think the struggle is sometimes in leadership that takes a, a true understanding of who you are in Jesus and who God has created you to be and that your identity is based in that and not in the results of how things come out. Would, would, would that be, would that be an accurate assumption or not? Oh, I think, I think you absolutely nailed it. I, I think, the, the vision for this kind of leadership is, is what if I was more human than missionary? Hmm. What, if, what if my foundational identity is that I'm rooted and established in the love of God, yeah. in, in my dad's love? And therefore, I can hear pain from people with, with a negative impact on my leadership because my identity... Like that's the side of it. It's not like it does take bravery. It is a courageous thing to do, but, but it's also in your own self-interest hmm. because you get to taste the grace of Jesus Christ that you so eloquently tell others about. The majority of faith leaders I work with uh, struggle to believe the gospel they preach so well. Wow. And this, this is a path, this way of living is an actual way forward for that. That's that's what I would cast it. Wow, man. 
Well, Steve, this has been a, a, a phenomenal conversation and lots of gold. And um, I appreciate you taking your time today to to speak into the hearts of, of global workers around around the globe. Would you pray for the audience today that, um, as you shared, um, that this will not just be new head knowledge and things that we uh, say, well, I got some new things I'm thinking about, but we'll begin to put this into action in our life as we follow Jesus, as you said, not becoming like Jesus, but as we follow Jesus and as we lead um, others towards him. I would love to do that. Well, Heavenly Father, I just first want to begin by thanking you for the gift of the day. And thank you that you promise us in Lamentations that every morning is a new morning with fresh mercy. Your mercies are new every morning. Lord, your faithfulness is great every day. And Lord, my prayer is that we would be, as leaders, at least as kind to ourselves as you are to us. That we would be at least as patient with ourselves as you are to us. Lord, my prayer for the leaders who, who pour themselves out so much for other people, my prayer is that we would encounter the visceral love of God that we so eloquently tell others about, Lord, that we would sacrifice time and money and our schedule and our workload to, to practice the presence of Jesus Christ. You are a good God, and Lord, you know that we are living in such difficult times. Lord, may each of us put more effort into enjoying you and remembering that we are enjoyed by you. That's my prayer in Jesus. Amen. 